Breakfast with Martin. Klaus fights back. It was bread and sausages the next morning. Martin had come back from a long, brisk walk, glowing with irritating, ruddy health. His voice boomed around the house, commanding and cajoling. He had a list of chores Tom could hear him assigning to the children as Tom dressed. Even Tom, who had never had many chores to do, could tell that many of them were pure make-work. Something about this house sort of clamoured around Tom's head like some insistent, possibly dangerous insect. He felt as if everything Martin did was somehow for his, Tom's, benefit, to make some sort of impression, the heartiness, the oaken strength, the effortless family rule. Look, this is what a German man is capable of. What has bloodless English rationalism to offer in comparison? It is, Tom thought, fixing his collar, an entirely one-sided combat. He did not really care what sort of life Martin had carved out for himself here in this little rural backwater. Sure, he had the respect and deference of a small community of uneducated peasants. He had swarms of children, each unique, while he was out of sight, who melted into dead compliance when he entered the room. His wife... Tom made a face, tucking in his shirt. It was the oldest story of marriage. One spouse sucked the other dry. One became an annoying, over-vital ball of false energy. The other withdrew to the shadows, smiling and planning an overthrow of emptiness. Tom opened his door. Klaus was waiting in the hallway. "'Father, has you down for something?' he said without preamble. "'Leave it up to me. There's something else I want to show you.' Tom nodded, and they went downstairs. "'Tom!' cried Martin, throwing his arms wide and speaking through some black shards of bread. "'How glad we are! You should join us. We're almost done, but we've saved you something.' Martin's children all turned and beamed at him. Tom almost took a step back. "'Thank you, Father Hebner,' said Tom. "'Tea?' asked Renata, appearing at his right elbow. "'Thanks,' said Tom. A cup came past his head and was set down on the table. "'We're just going over our idle hands list,' said Martin. "'We're very socialistic. We expect all who eat to work. "'Amen!' cried the children. Tom stared at them, at Chris and Soren in particular, but could discern no falseness. He had to tear his gaze away from them with an effort. "'Sausage?' asked a soft voice in his left ear. Tom nodded, unwilling to turn around. "'Thanks,' he whispered. A plate of sausages floated down. Tom's stomach turned just once, quite slowly. "'So, Tom, I have you and Egbert on the roof of the coal shed. It has to be painted, but it has to be sanded first. And Klaus said, "'Father?' Martin held up his hand, imperiously not stopping his speech. Egbert can tell you all about his fascination with vegetables of incongruous proportions. I assume that satisfies? Father, said Klaus, I am taking Tom to the aerodrome today. You do not fly at night. There was a short pause. Klaus did not seem to be expending any effort, but all of Martin's children leaned forward slightly like delicate petals over a probing be. Not at night, father, today. Martin laughed. <laughs> Come on! I want to take him up. Of course you do. Very hospitable. With any luck, he and Egbert will finish today. So, father, I can only take him up 
today. The airplane is only around until tonight. And you wish to bring this up publicly? asked Martin, gesturing as if they were ringed by hungry reporters. Tom poked his finger at a sausage. It appeared to be stuck to the plate. A knife and fork appeared from over his left shoulder. Renata started cutting his food. Tom reddened but said nothing. Her hip was against his elbow, and he couldn't help but think of all the children around the table, and that they had all passed through her hips. And he caught an odd vision of Martin holding each baby aloft over a stormy altar, pledging him or her to the care and protection of the great ghost. Klaus laughed. The children leaned in a little more. "'You are a countryman to your heart, father. Civilized people don't put their guests to work the very first day.' Martin pointed a knife at him. "'You have learned gross incivility in England, firstborn. Tom is from the city. You are not. Have some respect for his wishes.' "'Tom?' demanded Martin, leaning towards him. The children turned to him. "'You do not wish to work?' "'I have just spent two years reading,' thought Tom. "'This is a family matter,' he said. The children turned back to their father. "'Come now. Every man has an opinion about everything under sun and moon. Would you rather go flying with Klaus or stay here and sand my roof?' "'I would rather go flying with Klaus.' "'Fine.' said Martin. You shall fly with Klaus, and tomorrow you and Klaus shall do the roof. No, father, said Klaus patiently. Why not? Because you are trying to punish me for wanting to go flying. I have worked hard at school, and, and you do not think that I work hard here? Of course you do. But you love it. You love getting up at dawn and carrying bales of barbed wire forty miles, but don't use it to bully everyone else. There was no gasp. The children did not move. The only reaction Tom noticed was that Renata's goal of cutting his sausages into their component atoms paused for a brief moment. Martin's lips compressed like ridges of plasticine under a fist. That is poorly spoken, Klaus Heppner, most poorly spoken. Klaus shrugged, tearing off a hunk of black bread. Tom was surprised he did not lose a fingernail on the crust. "'Is this what I am paying for? These kinds of words?' "'I am on a scholarship, father,' said Klaus. "'You stopped paying two years ago.' "'Yes,' demanded Martin, his face purpling. "'And did you get those scholarships because I paid, or did you not?' "'I did,' said Klaus. His face was still serene, but his eyes were narrowing slightly. "'Then you owe me the respect I am due!' I am the master of this house, and don't cast any looks at me, Mr. Spencer, he said, not turning to Tom. You have your house of lords as well in your land. Klaus did not respond. He was looking out the window. His fingers spread out on the tablecloth, making a little buzzy sound. Renata, stop cutting that man's food, bellowed Martin suddenly, still staring at his eldest son. If he wanted soup, he would have asked for it. The knife and fork stopped in mid-cut, and were removed silently. The hip withdrew, and Tom felt relieved, as if Renata's massive fertility had been pressing against his very brain. "'Do you still wish to oppose me?' demanded Martin. Klaus did not respond. "'Answer me!' 
tell me, father, said Klaus softly after a moment, is there actually anyone else in the room for you at the moment? What does that mean? asked Martin, almost curiously. Who are you fighting with? Don't bring any of this modern philosophy to my table, cried Martin scornfully. Keep it for your humanist professors. Here you are marked not by men, but by God. Chris opened his mouth. Martin did not look at him. Tom did. Chris turned to him. Say something, he mouthed. Tom shook his head almost imperceptibly. God might choose more than one man, said Klaus, to speak. Not in this house, replied Martin smugly, feeling very much that he had won that round. Klaus sighed, then turned and looked at his father full in the face. These words will not help. I am going to take Tom to the aerodrome today. Tomorrow you may ask him to sand your roof, but I will not. I will do tomorrow what you expect me to do today. Martin's face seemed to concentrate. It was blood or fury or something. He closed his eyes and reached out his hands. His two daughters to either side took them immediately. Dear God, said Martin slowly, you see beneath you a house of conflict. A son wages war against his father. We have lost the words of tenderness. Your words, the words of your son. Help us to see more clearly into each other's hearts. Tom lost the next few sentences because he felt a hand close softly over the back of his head in the sensual spot where his hair met the skin of his neck. Renata! It felt distinctly sexual. Tom's eyes widened slightly. Well, perhaps this is how they pray in the country, he thought in panic. I can't turn my head. What if she's licking her lips in open invitation as her husband prays across the table? The fingertips dug under his hair, searching for the roots. Tom felt goosebumps on his forearms. Danger! Fertility! Martin's voice rippled back into audibility. And so I pray you, my God, to help us through this pass, to find each other through you, and to not let this sundering grow as the years pass, like the rot in a tree which cannot be cured. There was a short pause. Then with one voice the family said, Amen. The hand was withdrawn from Tom's neck. Everyone opened their eyes. Klaus said, God told me to go to the aerodrome. Martin's eyes narrowed like little arrow slits laid on their side. What? he said, his long teeth bared. God told me very clearly that the cause of justice could only be served by bringing Tom to the aerodrome. So after all these years, you hear God's voice and he tells you that you should do exactly what you want to do. That is what happened, said Klaus. There was a short pause. What did God tell you? asked Klaus. He told me to offer peace and understanding to my son, said Martin in a self-righteous tone. Then God spoke to both of us. Martin leaned forward on the table once more. 
tell me this, son, tell me this, and you shall go flying with my benediction. Did you hear God's voice just now as we prayed, as clearly as you claim? I will know if you're lying. Father, said Klaus gently, God spoke to me as clearly as he sometimes speaks to you. Martin held his son's eyes for a moment, then nodded slowly, coldly, unconvincingly. He had been outmaneuvered somehow, in some way that Tom could not understand. "'Come on, Tom,' said Klaus, rising. He glanced down, then paused. "'Sorry, you haven't finished your sausage paste yet.' Tom took two hurried gulps, wiped his mouth, and jumped up, hoping he would not back into Renata. He imagined that she was standing naked behind him, but that no one had noticed. Tom and Klaus go gliding. Tom smiled to himself as they left the house together, looking at Klaus with new respect. There had been something about the manner in which he had defied his father that had been right on the border between contempt and kindness. He had given his father a way out of a public humiliation without compromising his own position. Tom had always thought of Klaus as dreamy, flighty, and to see something flinty, shrewd, and calm in him was delightful. Tom loved to be proved wrong about people. It was part of his essential optimism. Discovering a tough aspect of Klaus was like discovering a vulnerable side of Reginald. Tom sighed. Even here I cannot escape his image. Now, said Klaus, the problem is that we have to get to the aerodrome by noon, but we have no car. How do you normally do it? Normally there is a car. My father got rid of it because it did not respond to his attempts to fix it. Naturally, it was the car's fault. Tom clicked his front teeth together. Now, I'll wait to ask him about his father. What about horses? They've been lent to a neighbor. Let's run, said Klaus, and hitchhike if we can. How far is it? About fifteen miles. Good Lord, cried Tom. I'm not running fifteen miles. I'll take the roof job. Klaus smiled. What happened to the original English running horse? That was more than two years ago. I'm abominably out of shape. So how the hell do you stay so thin? asked Klaus, gripping his own little love handles. I forget to eat, then gorge. I think my body just loses the knack of processing calories. Hmm, bastard. All right, let's just see how far we get then. They started off trotting down the rutted path, the one Tom had walked with Soren the night before. After a few minutes, he stopped running. Look, this isn't going to work. I want to ask some questions. Klaus stopped as well. All right, but if we don't get a ride in half an hour, we'll run. Agreed. So, questions. Your father. Klaus smiled sadly. What do you want to know? Is he violent, Tom was going to ask, but stopped himself. Just tell me about him. About my father, but we have only fifteen miles. There was a pause. They reached the road and turned. In the distance, a smudge of brown dust rose against the clear blue autumn sky, but no car came. He thinks I have great potential for evil, said Klaus in a voice so soft that it broke Tom's heart and made his nose sting slightly. Damn these waterworks! But then he thought, do I? believe that Klaus has great potential for evil?' 
I don't know. I don't know. Tom reached down and picked up a stick. He loved to swing things while he walked. Go on, he said, testing the air with a thin whoosh. Klaus shrugged. He thinks I am the brightest star in his entire brood. I was a trial for him. I am very curious, which has been my downfall. I outpaced him very quickly, the village teacher, soon after. Klaus smiled and ducked his head almost shyly. It's not that I'm vain. That's not how I meant it. But I feel a little like a star which fell into a cesspool. I cannot light the pool, and the pool cannot put me out, so we fight. Tom nodded slowly. Once more, and not for the last time, he was aware of how much sorrow the average human heart holds. Everyone feels unloved. There is something about my father and me. This is common right across Germany. That's what the play was about, perhaps, and the recital. When we're in the same room, it's like it's him or me in a way that I cannot put into words. But everyone feels it. It's a generational thing. Klaus sighed, not in sorrow, but in a kind of heavy demise. It is a very sad thing when you can no longer take your father seriously. Did you ever? asked Tom, then blushed. They will never let me back into England now. Klaus rubbed his forehead. I don't know. No, I'm lying. I do. Of course. He was the whole Old Testament when I was young. He was so... So sure, so strict. It was like he had never been born and would never die. I could never hope to... Klaus suddenly smiled. It was wrenching. Tom, he said, this is not a topic for such a fine day. Let's talk about something better. I want to tell you what I've been doing at the aerodrome. Flying, said Tom, disappointed at the change of topic, but relieved to retain his liquids. It was going to be a long walk and dehydration wouldn't help. No said Klaus softly, gliding. Huh, grunted Tom, swishing his stick through the air. I need a bigger stick. I mean, I will fly in time, but for now there is nothing more beautiful than just floating above the clouds. Do you know that you can open a window a little up there? You've never tasted air like it. I can't breathe on the ground afterwards. Sounds nice. Oh, <laughs> you English! laughed Klaus. Nice! I can see you all on your honeymoon. Your lovely wife leans over and says, How was that, darling? And you say, Jolly nice! That will be your description of heaven as well. Jolly nice! But I say, do they just let any old sort in here? Tom smiled. Do you really think that you, or any German, is really in a position to complain about emotional restraint? I remind you that we just came from Berlin, which seems to be German for Gamara. Ah, those are just growing pains said Klaus, waving his hand. The gesture annoyed Tom a little. But let's not step in the Anglo-German swamp. It's certainly too nice a day for that. Klaus's step faltered for a moment. A thought just struck me, he said. What would you like to talk about? Sorry? Well, you're here in my country at the house of my father, and all we've done is talk about Germany and me. What would you like to talk about? Tom frowned. The tears came hovering back. Gosh, me? We're too ideological to be close friends. Perhaps that should change. What is the problem that you've never gone to anyone else with? Ouch, thought Tom. I really think I rather prefer to be the one asking questions. He stopped and lowered his head, shaking it slightly. His hair fell forward over his face. 
Oh, Lord, he said. What would I not like to talk about? Whatever you want. Tom jerked his head up, brushing his hair back. There's really only one thing, Klaus, and I think that it has broken my heart. What is it? Tom's face convulsed, then broke. A small flock of birds scattered at his cry. Oh, Klaus, <laughs> there is going to be a war. Klaus stood rock still. His habitual abstractions seemed to scatter with the birds, and he leaned, proud and small, like a young tree, towards Tom. Of course, he said softly. And then they hugged each other. They could not have prevented it. Two men standing beneath some vast collapsing structure would have the same irresistible impulse. In the face of death, contact is the last spasm of life. After a few moments, Klaus stepped back. All right, two things. First, I withdraw my caveat about English reserve. Second, you only get one topic of conversation. I don't think I could take another. Tom smiled and wiped his eyes. Is that the purpose of this trip? asked Klaus. I think so. Hmm. What did you mean when you said, of course? I meant, of course, that is what is wrong with you. Klaus pursed his lips. Sorry, that is your brother talking. I meant, of course, if you believed that, it would have grave consequences to your present, to your conception of the future. You don't think that there will be a war? We're not talking about me. Equivocator! cried Tom, imitating Martin's tone. Avoider! cried Klaus, doing the same. Just tell me when it started, this belief. Tom frowned, then gestured at the road ahead. They started walking again. The scattered birds hesitated then, came back to earth. It started... Lord, that's like trying to describe how I'd learned to speak. It wasn't one day. Certainly by the time I left Oxford. It's been growing since then. While you were at Oxford? Yes, I think so. What about the day your brother was attacked in London? No, it actually got better after that for a while. Really? I wonder if that was because your brother was attacked or because he survived. What? Don't pay me any mind. Go on. Not much else to say. I sat in my room or walked. I felt that something was closing in on me. Tom paused. Something that could be held off by reading or walking? No, but that I might be in a better position to fight it if I knew what? I don't know, said Tom. I wasn't running around England bleating that the sky was falling. I don't have a message that is being ignored. I'm going to end up with a long beard, no shoes, and an end of the world is nigh sign, riding the tube, arguing with the adverts. This is quite a burden, said Klaus. This is going to sound very German, but tell me about your mother. Tell me about yours, thought Tom, remembering Renata's fingers on the nape of his neck. It's not her, it's something else. Your father? Him? Lord, he was more of a sperm donor. Tom ground his teeth at his tendency towards flippant answers, then took a deep breath. We've never been close. Ah, Reginald, 
more like it. What is the matter with you two? What is not the matter with us? sighed Tom. I had to ban him talking about you, said Klaus. Second year, I had to be frank. I am not often frank. Really? asked Tom, a little thrill running through his stomach. I am not going to stoke your vanity. He was always trying to figure you out, understand you. You are completely incomprehensible to him, though he says he loves you. Sure, sure, said Tom, staring at the ground at the infinite passing details of twigs and mud and grass. What are you thinking now? asked Klaus. Well, he knows almost nothing about me. Doesn't want to explore my thoughts, never asks me about myself. He hasn't come to visit me once in London unless he was there for some other reason. No letters. No, there was one telling me I had to go and see Mother more often. So what the hell is he talking about when he says he loves me? What does he love? What? It's bullshit. Do you love him? Tom stopped in his tracks. Love? His fingertips tingled. There's a lot of shared history. We have things in common. I won't press you, said Klaus delicately. No, you know. No. <sighs> Tom exhaled mightily, as if he were letting loose a breath he had been holding since birth. No, I don't. Well, that's important to know. You don't disapprove? Disapprove? What do you mean? My father is a sperm donor. I don't love my brother. <laughs> oh, for heaven's sake, Tom! Klaus laughed. I know that you are very stolid in your morals, but aren't they just a bit formulaic? How <laughs> does a rationalist get so sentimental? He laughed again, harder, and then doubled over, his blonde hair flopping over like a little mop. There was little peace for the birds that day. Tom scanned Klaus for mockery, but there was none. He was genuinely amused. Oh, <laughs> you and I are quite a pair, cried Klaus. I can't take my family seriously, and you can't take yours with a healthy grain of salt. I think that there is nothing of value in the ideas of the past, and you think that there's nothing of value in the ideas of the present. We are artistic opposites. You and I, coming from the same principles. I reject my head. You reject your heart. Oh, it is most amusing. After securing a ride, they arrived at the aerodrome a little afternoon. It was a small, tidy place with a few training aircraft, mostly Caspers, some low hangers, a well-mown airstrip, a few wind socks, and a fluttering German flag. For some reason, seeing the gusty flag made Tom feel cold all of a sudden as he and Klaus walked towards a low hut. So what's the story behind this place? A nearby Count Orski took up flying as a hobby, but all hobbies are social, so he threw open his aerodrome to any enthusiast. He got instructors, planes, he loves those Caspers. They've got a wingspan of 50 feet and a 203 horsepower engine. They go over a hundred miles an hour. Fantastic! There's an annual fee, but it's nominal. But I talked him into gliding. He'd never even heard of it. Engines always appeal to machismo. <laughs> what does that say about us weeping and hugging on a road and then getting into a plane without an engine? Joked Tom, but Klaus did not respond. That incident apparently had to be left behind them. I wrote to a friend of mine who will tow us up. At this, Count Orski just lets you use his glider? 
Klaus shrugged. Well, I have to maintain it. Every time I use it, it works out. They went into the hut where a middle-aged man greeted Klaus warmly. He was fairly formal when introduced to Tom, clicking his heels smartly, although he was in comfortable slippers. He was to be the pilot and arranged to fly them up in half an hour. Klaus and Tom went over to the low hangar. Inside was a long, wide, and lovely glider. Tom whistled. That's gorgeous. It is, said Klaus, walking forward in a brisk professional manner. Tom smiled at his friend's back, yet another incarnation of Klaus. Klaus went over the controls. It was a two-seater. Klaus would be sitting in the back to give Tom a better view. It had dual-control joysticks, one in front of each seat. When we get high enough, said Klaus, I'll let you take control for a few minutes. It's much more fun than just being a passenger. That would be great, murmured Tom, gazing into the cockpit. He had an odd sensation. He wanted to press the length of his body against the white frame of the glider. It seemed like a living thing to him, in the nature of an appendage he had mislaid at birth. When the pilot had hooked up the cable leading from the back of his aircraft to the front of the glider, Klaus and Tom settled into the seats and closed the canopy. The smell of creaky, dusty leather filled Tom's nose. He felt unbearably excited. He touched the joystick. He wanted to grip it tight and swing the craft through every inch of sky. Behind Tom, Klaus reached out of the canopy and signaled the pilot of the airplane in front of them. Its engine roared and it taxied forward. The cable pulled taut and the glider lurched along behind it. Tom flinched as if it were his own belly being pulled along the grass. He felt them gathering speed over the hissing earth. Klaus's hand patted his shoulder. Tom twisted around and saw Klaus behind him, grinning madly, his blue eyes shining. The aircraft pulled them up to about 5,000 feet. Klaus told Tom to pull a lever and the cable snaked away in front of them. The airplane banked away and then they were alone over the clouds. Tom loved being in the silent sky in a way he had never loved anything before. He felt, he felt that the space around him was so great that his personality finally had scope. He felt the absence of consciousness around him, and this let his heart expand like an overflowing river. Men's minds had always confined him as they do all original souls, and the lack of thought around him hanging in space was profound and peaceful. The lack of thought. An odd notion occurred to him. I have always been surrounded by a lack of thought, but it is not real. The emptiness is real. There is no fakery, no walls made only of wallpaper. Up here, where there is nothing, there is nothing. It took a few minutes for him to remember that there was another mind in close proximity. He turned to Klaus, who nodded at him softly, silently, his eyes glistening, the joystick firm in his pale hands. Tom didn't trust his voice. The blue above was pure and beautiful. The clouds, white in a way which snow never managed, hurled the brightness of the sun back into the heavens. The dark blue overhead faded in imperceptible increments to a pale blue, almost white, on the horizon. There were a few streaks of cirrus far above and a white eruption of cloud ahead and to the left, perhaps two miles away. 
Through the occasional gap in the gathering clouds, the dark earth could be seen, but it looked murky like the depths of an overgrown pool. Murky, thought Tom, and uninviting. He touched his own stomach in wonder. I am so relaxed. He had been more relaxed in his little room than he had ever been at Oxford, but that was nothing compared to this. He could breathe more easily here than anywhere. He felt that the world was a wonderful, friendly place, uncontaminated by irrational prejudices and hostilities. A world without the danger of men. Tom felt almost supernaturally drowsy. He closed his eyes for a brief moment, enjoying the orange light of his eyelids, but realized that the view was too great to miss. He opened them again and thought how different this was from his passenger flight from England. It was silent. There were almost no vibrations. He felt like the eye of a great gull. From behind he heard Klaus's voice. Tom, I'm going to try some maneuvers. Let me know if you feel sick. Tom nodded, realizing for the first time that the gesture worked as well from the back as from the front. The glider pulled up and to the right, arcing, in impossible motion. For a moment, Tom began to panic. If this was a car, we would be dead. But then he remembered, felt, actually, the mass of empty air below them, and his heart settled. We could do five loops without touching the ground. He also felt the strain in the body of the glider as Klaus spiraled it. It was not a creaking exactly, but a sort of subterranean groaning. Tom also felt dizzy, but found that by concentrating on one spot as the plane rolled, he could keep his head clear. Finally, they righted. They had lost perhaps 700 feet. The number popped into Tom's head without bidding, and he regarded it skeptically. In relation to what? Take the stick, said Klaus from behind. Tom nodded slowly. He put his hands around the joystick. After a moment, it came to life in his hands. It seemed to turn from a stick to a spine, something alive, vital. His biceps and forearms locked into place. His whole body froze. The glider sailed on. Loosen up, laughed Klaus. Tom took a deep breath. Willing his arms to relax, he angled the joystick to the right, perhaps two degrees. Excellent. That's a four-mile turn. Tom smiled despite his fear. He angled the stick further, about 15 degrees. It took a few seconds for the glider to respond. It's not like a car, thought Tom. A car would be off the road by now. This bird is barely responding. Pull back, said Klaus, so we don't lose height as we turn. Tom pulled the joystick back into his belly. The tilted horizon went downward slightly. Tom felt a great, terrible exultation coursing through him. Woo! He falsettoed. Klaus laughed behind him. Take us into a loop. Vertical? That's the only kind. Up or down? Up, but dip a little first to gain speed. Right! cried Tom. He let the joystick go forward a little bit for about 30 seconds. Then he pulled it back, slowly, then with increasing pressure. The clouds, which filled two-thirds of the windscreen, dipped and vanished. His buttocks sank into the leather beneath him. The blue shifted in spectrum from lighter to darker until Tom's face hung underneath the dark hole at the top of the sky. 
He felt another moment of panic, then a roller coaster of terror as if the glider standing on its tail would just slip down backwards through the air like an inverted needle and kill them both. But then, with another slight groan of the fuselage, gravity shifted again, and the blue began to pale. Tom giggled when the clouds dropped down from the top of the canopy. Pull back further. Hold it steady. Tom pulled back on the stick, his muscles like frozen ropes. With a rippling roar, which sounded almost like a distant cheer of relief, the glider righted. Tom let the joystick fall forward slowly. The clouds were lower, but not much. With great satisfaction, Tom noticed that the horizon was almost perfectly horizontal. Klaus whistled, You're a natural. No panic. No errors. No vomiting. It is, said Tom, but could not finish the sentence. Klaus clapped him on the shoulder. They tried a few more maneuvers. Once Klaus caused Tom to stall the glider, then took over the stick as it fell. After about twenty minutes, they dove into the silent clouds. Tom flinched, slightly unable to stop himself from imagining that they were crashing into a snowfield and would soon be eyeing each other hungrily like his tin soldiers of many years past. Tom felt very sad once they were below the clouds. The world seemed busy, complicated, unhappy. It was darker. There were taxes and ambitions down there. And Nazis, of course. Nazis and war. Perhaps. Probably. It did feel like being hurled back from heaven to resume a fairly unwanted existence. Klaus brought them into the aerodrome with quiet, expert grace. Tom felt the ground slithering along under the glider. Suddenly it felt as if they were going very fast, which was not a sensation which Tom had felt when they were in the sky, except when they had skimmed into the clouds and the wisps had torn by terrifyingly fast for an instant before the fog took his eyesight. Except on a bicycle I have never experienced speed without noise. Even running is a rhythm of slaps and pants. Tom felt an even more profound loss when the glider came to a stop. He was thrown forward half an inch before settling back into his seat. He closed his eyes. I want to go back, cried a tiny petulant voice in his mind, a voice he had not heard from for perhaps twenty years. A spatter of rain landed on the windscreen. Welcome back. Klaus, perhaps, felt the same sadness he sat behind Tom without speaking. After a minute or two, he said, Well, let's get out. They'll be worried if we just sit here, and it's getting wetter. I don't want to use my legs, thought Tom in the same little voice. But he reached up and pushed open the canopy after Klaus had released the clasps. Undoing his seatbelt felt like a pathetic surrender. They climbed out and walked back to the aerodrome in silence. Each man's face was a complex array of emotions. Both were clearly passionate about the sky. Both needed to escape from others, but for different reasons. Both wanted to get away from a world they liked, as a man will both love and leave a sauna. "'There's no chance of going up again, is there?' asked Tom softly. Klaus shook his head. "'Look,' he said, turning to Klaus, who stopped walking. "'That was... Thank you, 
That was a defining experience for me. You have given me a gift. Thank you for standing up to your father this morning. It was unbelievable. I'm glad to have been higher up than the roof of a priest. It's vaguely blasphemous to him. Science, vanity, but he's sort of stuck. Icarus was Greek and they were pagan. He's tried to extend the Tower of Babel, but it doesn't really work. It's wrong, but he can't attack it without looking provincial. Sorry, I'm babbling. What I meant to say was, you're welcome. And I took more pleasure in your pleasure than you did. Tom laughed. That, that's hard to imagine. Now we have to go and pay our respects to Count Orsky. Don't we have to do maintenance on the collider? After. Let's drop in and have some cocoa. As they walked, Tom saw behind the large hangar about ten small, bulbous white airplanes parked in two neat rows. The noses and wheels were fat, tapering along the fuselage to more narrow tails. He had not seen them before because they had been blocked by the hangar. Those are nice, said Tom. Klaus nodded. They're new. Came in a few weeks ago. Have you tried them? They're the new layered solutions. Well, reproductions, I think. I've been up, but never soloed. They're wonderful, though. Monoplanes are the future. Less resistance, stronger wings, more maneuverable. Why are they here? Asked Tom, feeling a slight unease. There was no real reason why they shouldn't be, but something seemed odd. Don't know, replied Klaus. We can ask the Count. His house is just over this hill. Their arrival was announced by a butler, and the two young men waited in an ornate anteroom. Tom's eyes ran over the paintings, motionless little clocks, and stopped at a glass-fronted cabinet of exquisite wood. He took a few steps towards it, then took a step sideways so that his figure blocked the daylight coming in from a window opposite the glass. He leaned forward. There were little carvings inside. One was of the skeleton of an infant walking on its knuckles over the body of a woman, probably its mother. Another was a grinning devil's head thrown back in evil laughter, a childish human foot protruding from its mouth. Another was a sheer surface of some glossy rock. As Tom cocked his head, he noticed that a shimmering, agonized face appeared deep in the rock carved in some oblique manner. There were more little figures, each more horrible than the last. Fascinating, said Klaus, standing beside him. That always draws my guests, said a voice from behind them. It's very eastern, beauty in suffering. But it's not, said Klaus, turning around, eastern. Tom turned around as well. The man he saw seemed quite incongruous. He was about fifty, paunchy, thick-faced and coarse of mouth and manner. Put a butcher's coat on him, thought Tom. He would look quite at home behind a counter. Too easy, said the man. You have a guest. Let him tell us. Tom had read widely and was no stranger to art theory. It's too representational. Yes, that's true, said the man slowly in the kind of mocking false voice that always set Tom's teeth on edge. He had grown up with that kind of voice. It is very representational, the man continued, walking towards them. Western realism during a time when the world of the East protruded into the Western world. These pieces are very rare. They come from all over Europe. Can you guess the time period? Tom smiled thinly. No, but I think 
that it was not a time period when light operettas ruled the stage. The man laughed harshly. He had tiny, deep-set eyes. Tom wanted to lean forward with a flashlight and peer inside his lids to check that they weren't just holes to nowhere. No, said the Count, there was no light operetta. These are artworks from the time of the Black Death. Fourteenth century, said Klaus, shaking the man's hand. Tom Spencer, Count Orsky. Pleased to meet you, said Count Orsky, bowing to Tom. Count, said Tom, then turned to Klaus. Actually, the Black Death came in waves, almost every generation, even up to the seventeenth century. Yes, it always comes in waves, said the Count. And people thought it was the wrath of God, when it was just, in fact, the movement of rats. Our greatest disasters always have the most petty causes. Tom laughed. Sorry, he said, his mouth smoothing instantly. What? No, it's really n nothing. The man smiled. You had a thought. Tell us. It's a German habit, said Tom, that I just can't get used to. I don't mean to be rude. What habit? These statements, they sound good, but they're like gossamer. They can't take any close examination. Can you think of a great disaster which didn't have a petty cause? Tom opened his mouth, then closed it again. Go on, said Count Orsky. Tom shook his head. The Count leaned forward. Please, a payment for my glider, if you prefer. All right, said Tom. The Great War. Count Orsky snorted. <laughs> the assassination of Ferdinand was hardly a great cause. That's why I closed my mouth. Because, as an Englishman, you do not think it arose from that. Because we Germans are the ogres you read of as a child in fairy tales. He leaned forward and opened his mouth wide. Boo! He murmured, then laughed. <laughs> Please, stay for coffee. Tom glanced at Klaus, who was smiling. We have a little time, said Klaus, and it's raining now anyway, he added to Tom slightly apologetically. Tom followed the two men into an even more ornate living room. Against the far walls stood a group of young men in rough blue uniforms. All the young men had strong jaws, short hair, and impassive faces. They were leaning in towards each other, arguing and gesturing with flat hands that they turned to and fro. The young men jumped to their feet when Count Orsky entered. Tom had the impression that they were about to salute, but they restrained themselves. "'Gentlemen,' said Count Orsky in his ringingly false voice, "'this is Klaus Hepner, who some of you have met before, and his friend Tom Spencer.' At Tom's name, some of the men smiled in a tight, wolfish manner. They came forward almost as one, and there was much handshaking. Again, Tom had the idea that the men had to consciously avoid clicking their heels." "'We just took the glider up,' said Klaus. "'How did you like it?' one of the men asked Tom. "'I really liked it,' said Tom, not wanting to express much enthusiasm. He did not have the strong impression that these men and himself would be enthusiastic about the same things. No, not at all. "'It is a woman's airplane,' cried another. "'It's not even an airplane!' "'It is very quiet.' agreed another. It says, I wish to pass unobserved. Please do not molest my passage. They laughed. Tom didn't like the joke, and not just because he didn't get it. 
And what are you gentlemen doing here? asked Tom. We are part of a civilian flying club, said one of the men. Count Oski has funded us and designed our flying uniforms. We hope to become crop dusters, sky riders. We shall drop advertising leaflets on the unsuspecting. Blue is the color of unity, like the sky, and ancient blood. The men broke into laughter again. Klaus said, You're flying the lads? Yes, we just took order of them a week ago. They are excellent. Five hundred horsepower. You should come out, Klaus, and we can show you how to fly like a real man. It's a more of a hobby, said Klaus. Yes, of course, said one of the men. It is a hobby for us, too, but sometimes a hobby can become a profession. Do what you love and the money will follow, smiled another man. Stay for coffee, said another, staring at Tom, and then come and watch a demonstration. We are flying this afternoon. Precision flying, wingtip to wingtip, and sometimes nose to tail. More laughter. And what do you gentlemen do when you are not flying? We work with Willy Messerschmitt. We're developing methodologies for improving the accuracy of the monoplane and exploring its maneuverability, its turning radius, diving speed, and payload. More laughter. Fuck the coffee, said Count Orski suddenly, with a flush of devious enthusiasm. Come, we go and fly. They all bustled out of the front door. The ten men ambled along rather casually, but Tom could not help but notice that they tended to drift into a formation of five equal rows of two each, one arm's length behind each other. At the aerodrome, the men walked over to the little hut. They stood in front of it, chatting amiably. Tom, Klaus, and Count Orski stood about twenty feet from them. Suddenly, Count Orski clapped his hands together. The men immediately sprinted across the field and climbed into their planes, standing about two hundred yards distant, shouting, Schnell! Schnell! From inside the hangar, another group of men started running towards the airplanes. The two groups met at about the same time. The blue uniformed pilots jumped into the planes. The other men removed the chocks from under the wheels, got the propeller blades started, then scattered to the side of the runway. After a coughing start, the two planes at the front began to move forward. They moved together with such precision that they seemed to have been welded together by invisible girders. Before they were halfway down the runway, three airplanes taxied into a V formation and roared after them. Tom shivered as he watched the airplanes take off, one row after each other in perfect precision. He felt the thrill of each pilot huddled in his little cockpit. He pictured the raindrops running back in long, snaking trails from the windscreen, the smell of oil and leather, the buzzing hum of the seat, the spinning blur of the propeller. They love to be doing this in unison, he thought. The aircraft were all in the sky now. Tom squinted up into the headachy white through the scattered rain. The planes disappeared into the low clouds. There was a pause. Count Orsky giggled in delight. The roar of engines was louder than Tom expected, but then he remembered that he had been sealed from them in his flight from England. Suddenly a wave of three airplanes came out of the clouds, pointing straight at them. Tom's legs twisted for a moment, and he had to will himself not to hurl his body at the ground. There was something biblical and terrifying about having these great roaring machines careening towards them from on high. They passed by not more than a hundred feet overhead. The ground shook with the violence of their passing. 
Three waves of airplanes went past. There was another pause, and then the last plane came down out of the low sky. It came straight at them. Tom imagined the dark spots on its wings flickering with fire and then pulled up slightly and rolled over. It flew upside down over their heads. Tom did throw himself to the ground, and looking up, his hands over his ears, Tom saw the crew-cut pilot grinning at him. The roaring passed by, and then it seemed as if it were snowing. Tom got up shakily as scores of little pieces of paper fluttered down, jerking slightly as the raindrops hit them. Klaus laughed, grabbing one out of the air. Tom watched one fall, seeing the static of many more floating in his peripheral vision. He felt strongly that it was important to let one of the papers fall to the ground and not snatch it from its path. His fingers closed over the cold, fragile paper. Turning it over, he read, The Hosenholland Flying Club! Serve your duty! Serve your passion! Serve your country! Serve them right! At the bottom of the paper was information. Tom frowned. The rain seemed to be bypassing his skin, falling right onto exposed bones. He shivered, his hand closing over the paper which crumpled easily into his cold claw-like fingers. The airplanes flew down again out of the clouds, one after the other. The first plane flew an erratic course. The second followed the first with some slight variations. The third followed the second, and so on. Tom followed the line of the planes as they flew across the airfield. Turning his head, he suddenly saw Klaus. The young man was standing tensely as if he were a rocket, waiting to be propelled upwards. His eyes were wide and worshipping. His hand clutched one of the club flyers. As Tom watched, another fluttered down from the sky and stuck to his wet chest. Seeming to feel Tom's gaze, Klaus turned and said, his voice choked with an ugly, triumphant tone, Now that's flying! <laughs>